I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. What's good, everybody? Happy Friday. You haven't heard of us all week, and that's because we have some news. Uh, I'm not saying it's good news. I'm not saying it's bad news. It's just news. So today is Brendan's last episode with the Celtics pod. He hated the fact he was wrong about Peyton Pritchard, decided he just couldn't deal with the ridicule that was going to follow for the rest of the season. So um, he's leaving. Jokes aside, Brendan's leaving to double down on the, his Kings coverage for the Kings Herald. Brendan, man, you're, uh, you're leaving me? I know, I know. I'm sorry, Adam. Uh, you and I will obviously stay in contact outside of things that are posted. Um, but yeah, there there won't be that much posted content Celtics related, at least right now between us. Um, because yeah, of Pritchard, I, right? I mean, are we blaming Pritchard for this? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, he goes down and, and that's when I call it. it. Maybe it's not a coincidence. Um, no. Yeah. Um, I, I could not handle it. You're right. It was just, it was too much every episode, you know, having to face my, face my wrongs all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, what's going to be going on with the show now is you guys are stuck with me. I'm going to be running it solo for a little while. So what that means is, no, you're not going to need to listen to me on my own talking into a mic. I don't have near the level of self-confidence to do that. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be bringing in people from around SB Nation, uh, talking to them about upcoming games, games that have gone by. And if the if we're in a bit of a period where there are no games, like a three or four day off, off stretch, then I'll be bringing in guys from Celtics blog and they'll come on and we'll discuss whatever's going on at that time, what they've wrote about, what, we're, what they're thinking of writing about. So we're going to diversify the content. I'll also be leaning on the guys from CLNS Media, seeing if I can clip some of the locker room stuff that they get their access to and try and bring that in there as well from time to time. But for now, you're joined by me and Mr. Brendan Nunes for Brendan's last episode of the Celtics pod. This first half is going to be covering the Kings game where the Celtics lost, unfortunately, which Brendan is sitting here slowly trying to fight a smile for. <laughs> and then the second half, I'll be joined by Sabrina Merchant, who covers the Clippers for Clips Nation of SB Nation. And that'll be to preview the Clippers game, let you know what's going on with the Clippers. And we kind of talk about where the weaknesses are that we can look for the Celtics to attack. So to get things going, Brendan, how do you feel about that Kings game? How, as, from a Kings perspective, are you happy? Yeah, I mean, De'Aaron Fox continues to play at an all-star level, um, a franchise-level guy. You know, 13 points in the fourth quarter of this one. He had 17 points in the game before this against New Orleans in the fourth quarter, 17 points in the fourth quarter of the game before that in Miami. He's on an absolute tear right now and has realized that he can kind of uh, do whatever he wants, most possessions, um, especially when he's being guarded by uh, Jeff Teague, you know. We use the word guarded loosely, right? I yeah, mean, you're, <laughs> yes, yes, we do. <laughs> Jeff Teague was there, yeah. um, especially when he's sharing the floor with Jeff Teague. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so funny. <laughs> what was that? That was a good one. That was a really good one. Yeah, I mean, it's true though, right? I mean, look. Yeah. I mean, the same way that Buddy Heald was just sharing the floor with, with Jalen Brown. Yeah, we, you know, imagine those two on a, on a team together. That would be the worst defense if yeah. guard pairing in the world. Yeah, uh, jokes aside, though, yeah, I think that um, the Arafax was a problem. I tweeted it out before uh, before the game that I think one of the Celtics' biggest, biggest issues, and it has been one of their biggest issues for a few years now, is containing dribble drive point guards. It always seems to be the guards that can penetrate and finish around the rim that give the Celtics the most problems. They're very good at closing down wings. They're quite capable of containing rolling big men, pick and pop threat big men. But once there's a guard that can beat guys off the dribble, they do tend to really struggle. And I think that's in part down to poor help defense sometimes. Um, other times uh, they've had, like the last few games, it's been very bad communication on how they want to switch pick and rolls, if they're hedging, if they're showing. They just seem to need to figure out that communication. And maybe that's because Marcus Smart's not in the rotation you just yeah. don't know. I mean, we'll see how their defense changes once Smart's back. But yeah, the Aaron Fox was really good. And I'll be quite honest, it's the first Kings game I've watched this year. I was not aware he's cut his hair. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe that's uh, made him a little quicker and, and more uh, sly and slippery around the rim. Uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a little bit of a different look for De'Aaron. Uh, are you surprised they didn't really put Jalen on him? That's kind of what I thought would happen going into this one. 
Yeah, a little bit. Like, I was expecting to see Jalen at least see how he can contain him. Jalen's probably one of the more athletic guys on the Celtics roster, one of the quicker guys. He's also, while Marcus Smart's like the best point of attack defender. So I don't know why they left Jeff Teague to kind of, you know, at least caress the Aaron Fox's shoulder a little bit while he was getting blown by. Um, Again, I don't know if they were expecting Brown to get switched on to um, Fox off pick and rolls. And that was where they they didn't want to match him off with Fox because then he'd get switched off of Fox. So maybe it was just a bit of a schematic thing that didn't pan out. But I mean, look. From a Celtics perspective, Tatum was great. Point forward Tatum is now officially a thing, and I'm all here for it. Um, Jalen Brown continued to be Jalen Brown, and we finally saw some life in Tristan Thompson. He got yeah. he was eating Marvin Bagley for breakfast. Marvin Bagley really, really got hurt quite badly. It was brutal. I felt bad for him. I've got a condolence card I'll give to you. Yeah, Bagley is uh not the greatest at using his at his strength. Uh, you know, you could definitely go for putting on some some weight but uh i think like you know harrison barnes has i think 20 10 20 or 10 less pounds on him and does a better job containing post-ups just because of kind of fundamentals and getting a strong low base and leaning into the guy and things like that um so yeah bagley uh got bullied by tristan thompson and there are a couple times where he had uh tatum uh as his assignment on the perimeter uh, usually because of switches and things like that and there are a couple moments like Bagley's tried hard this year. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think any one dribble move kind of blows you past uh, Bagley. And yeah, I, I thought that the Tatum pick and roll that the Kings had absolutely no answer. I mean, um, they've been a horrible defense this year. And the the bright side of their defense kind of is Rashawn Holmes. Um, it, at least he's the most important defender because when you look at the backups that come in after him being Hassan Whiteside or maybe Marvin Bagley at the five, it's just such a drastic drop off in defense. And I think getting Holmes involved in the pick and roll and forcing him to kind of be in that drop really led to so many opportunities for Tristan Thompson to either get a drop off pass in that dunker spot or come away with an offensive rebound because the Kings, you know, weak side guy was never um, sleep, um, sliding in and really containing Thompson at all. So I really thought that whoever was sitting in that dunker spot was kind of going to be able to feast all game. Um, but it did kind of slow down when when I think Time Lord was kind of the main backup for a lot of this game. Um, and, and then Ty's got some minutes as well. But yeah, I was really surprised that Thompson didn't continue to get run because he, he was killing the Kings at first, you know, in only 22 minutes to come down with 10 boards, three of them offensive and 17 points. Like, yeah, I thought he did great and was really surprised he didn't get run later in the game. Yeah, so I know we spoke about this off air, and I know that there's been a quote that's come out saying there was no time uh, minutes restriction for Tristan Thompson. My outlook on it is this. There's evidently been something from that original injury that Thompson had to start the season that's hampered his performance because over the last few games, we're starting to see a lot more aggression on the offensive end. He looks a little bit quicker defensively, seems to be willing to use his body a little more. And with that means that if there was some underlying injury that was like residue from the initial primary injury, I'll use the inj- word injury five times in two seconds, then pulling him out of the game after 20, 22 minutes makes sense in terms of keeping him fit for the game against the Clippers. This is a back-to-back. Maybe he felt a twinge. You don't know what's gone on that hasn't been released to the media. It makes sense to me that that might be one of the reasons behind him not playing. I know that Brad Stevens said it was due to matchups, but when Thompson was feasting like this, I mean, he had, what, 17 points, 10 rebounds in 22 minutes. So he was producing some form of statistical output more than every 30 seconds. He was having a really good game. And that's just because Marvin Bagley blows. Um, I was waiting for a response. On defense, on defense, yes. On both sides of the floor. Well, um, uh there's there's been progress this year there's been progress okay i mean look man i haven't watched much he's 21 he gets the tatum treatment he gets the tatum treatment tatum's 19 what you want to bet yeah my bad (laughs) bagley's only 19 too i've been trying i've been watching a lot more um i try like i said to you before i try and watch a game a day that's non-celtics i've skipped a lot of kings games this year just because i haven't really seen them as a threat uh, I might watch more simply for this one man named Mr. Tyrese Halliburton because he is electric to watch. Him and De'Aaron Fox are a ridiculously good pairing. 
Yeah, man, I uh, I love Halliburton. I think everybody around the league seems to love Halliburton. I think that he has a good chance to get Rookie of the Year, even though I probably think it still ends up going to Lamelo. Um, the step back threes that he's hitting in this game were insane, and were not part of the scouting report coming out of Iowa State. Um, we've talked about it a bunch on over at Kings Pulse, but um, his shot variance this season is what has totally been the outlier and made me kind of throw his, you know, low ceiling, I think is is kind of a way that he was presented coming out of the draft that I I felt was fair. Um, And that shot variance that he's had has made that completely get thrown out the window. Um, Yeah. Off the dribble threes, five of nine from deep is ridiculous. He was in a little bit of a shooting slump. I want to say like 28% over the last four games coming into this one. Um, and kind of broke out of it, even though he's, I, I think, still hovering around 45% from three for the year. Um, yeah, he's absolutely amazing and a great pairing around or next to De'Aaron Fox. Um, the minutes that one of Fox or Barnes is not out there for the Kings really scare me because those are the only two guys that can get into the paint whenever they want, um, on their own at least, because I felt like the lineups when you see, um, say, Corey Joseph, Halliburton, Heald, um, Bagley, and Whiteside, you're just forced to do a Halliburton-Holmes pick-and-roll every single possession because he's the only capable playmaker. Um, and my wording that I've used all year for Halliburton he's, is he's a guy that does a good job capitalizing on advantageous situations, but he's not the guy to create the advantage himself. And I think Barnes and Fox can kind of be the guys to do that. Um, and, and yeah, when when that was a lineup without Fox or Barnes and Boston really had a bench unit out there, too, that w- was uh, very much involving Tremont Waters and Time Lord. Um, they, they really went to a zone defense that I felt like did a pretty good job slowing down the Kings a little bit there. And the Kings went to their own zone at one point, which led to the Celtics going on a 16-0 run. Um, the Kings come out of that zone and then go on a 12-0 run of their own almost directly after so there's definitely, I know we say it's a game of runs, but there's definitely something to be said about the way that the Celtics have improved their ability to attack a zone. Uh, def- obviously, coming away from that Miami game, it must have been a point of emphasis in what they're working on. I'm still a, still a little bit unsure on how they're going to cope with an inverted zone. It's not something we've seen outside of that Miami game. But this was a very encouraging display from a Celtics perspective about how they'd attack a form of defense that gave them problems. And you talk about shot variance. And you look at the Celtics, you expect shot variance from Tatum, you expect it from Brown. But the one person that I was really kind of shocked that we didn't see more variance of his shooting from was Tice. We saw two, we saw a couple of pick and pops. Um, we saw a couple of times where he'd, um, screen and just stay where he was, which is technically a pick and pop, but I, I like to call it, call it like a pick and remain. We only had one shot inside the three point line. Um, I like Tice doing them pick and pops around the mid range as well. I feel like he's a uh, super reliable pulling up from the free throw line extended. And we didn't get to see much of that. And I don't know if that was schematic or I don't know if the King's done a good job of keeping him on the line and not allowing him to get inside as much. But that was frustrating for me because I felt like Daniel Tice sometimes holds the keys to the game with the way he can play off of guys and he, the way he alters his movement depending on who's holding the ball. And then I look at, the Kings and one guy that just could not hit a lick was Buddy Hield. Shot three for ten from downtown. Is this normal? Is this what you expect from Buddy Hield at this point? No, I mean like I, I, three of ten isn't horrible, but it's not like Buddy Hield numbers. You know, like thirty percent on on ten attempts. Like it's not great, you know. But like I, I mean, there's nights where this is going to happen. Um, he was getting checked by Tatum and Brown, um, and those guys did a good job of kind of sticking with him. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't a great buddy healed game and it's funny because I think healed usually goes crazy against Boston for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um I think the broadcast was joking that you know he has a chip on his shoulder for um Brown getting picked over him and maybe that's a thing. Um haven't heard anything from Buddy about that. But yeah, no, I guess it was a little bit of a cold night from Buddy, but I, I don't think it's necessarily in outlier that like changed the game on its own you know sure a few more follow it was I mean it was a five-point game and that that makes it uh, a lot different down the stretch but it didn't feel like too much of an outlier um, from healed I think getting Holmes in foul trouble was really big um, for the Celtics Um, and and yeah to your Tice point I was really surprised because like I said at the beginning I I thought what Thompson was doing was going to be pretty replicable 
um, with the other Boston bigs. And that just didn't really happen with Tice. Like I thought, I know he's not necessarily ideal in a dunker spot with a lack of athleticism and like maybe not great physicality, but what Thompson was doing wasn't very complicated. And I felt like Tice could have been doing the same thing in that role and was kind of surprised that both he and, and Time Lord didn't really capitalize as much as I kind of thought they could. Um, not necessarily because of their own individual um, shortcomings or anything. It, it just felt like that wasn't part of the scheme. Yeah, and uh, like I can understand Rob Williams uh, replicating that more than what Tice does just because I think Tice's impact this year has been more around the mid-range and the perimeter than it would be around the dunker spot. Again, with Rob Williams as well, you want him rolling for that vertical space. And if you put him in the dunker spot, that's pre- that's predominantly because somebody's drove the lane and you're asking him to be available for tippings and offensive boards. He's Whereas Thompson doesn't offer that vertical space and he doesn't offer that perimeter scoring. So putting him in the dunker spot and allowing him to go to work from a post up makes the most sense. But I do agree, if you're getting success coming out of that low post and figuring out how to attack the block, then maybe you run it again with Rob Williams. I just don't know if Rob Williams would have had the same success against Bagley as what Thompson did, because maybe Bagley might be as strong, if not a little bit stronger than Rob will. Bagley's a good matchup for, I mean, there's very few, I think, good defensive matchups for um, Bagley, and I think Robert Williams could fall under that category. Um, Were you, I mean, Celtics have been a really short rotation recently, similar to Sacramento during this little stretch of, now five of six games, they've kind of been running an eight-man rotation. And, and tonight you saw Glenn Robinson worked in there too, so it was nine-man. Um, and I think Celtics have been about the same range. But last night you saw 11 players, and this is because you saw um, a lot of Grant Williams minutes. Grant Williams closed the game, I believe, right? And um, and then Carson Edwards gets thrown out there. Obviously, Tremont, because of um, a lot of injury issues at the point guard position, Tremont's closing the game. But like... I mean, closing minutes of Tremont Waters and Grant Williams puts a little bit of an asterisk on the game, though. Yeah, I mean, I'm not that uh, petty to start aster- asterisks in regular season games. But yeah. yeah, it does a little bit. If you want to start splitting hairs, what got me was there's only two players that didn't play in this game. Taco Fall, no complaints. Aaron Neesmith, could he have played? Should he have played? Yeah. If you need scoring down the stretch, should you put Aaron Neesmith in? I, I, there's questions there when I'm looking and I'm like, okay, who would whose minutes would he have got? Because you're going to play him at what the three? Ideally, you don't want it. He's too big for a two. Yeah, I and I think that you know, like Sacramento's defense sucks this year, so you really can do just Tatum and Brown as the only offensive players, and they can get whatever they want. And then Sacramento's only threat has been on the offensive end, where they've actually been a good team. So it does make sense to have you know like Ojale and Javante Green and like defensive specialists outside of the guys that are just going to take all your shots in Tatum and Brown. Yeah, and I completely agree. I just feel like, you know, with the game kind of slipping away down the stretch, then Neesmith might have been an option. But again, defensively, what you're giving up a little bit to try and score your way back in. Uh, right. But it's in a role of dice, right? Yeah, Sacramento would have loved to get a little teaser of, of Aaron Neesmith. I mean, you guys got to watch Harrison Barnes in his tryout. I don't get why, I don't get why the Kings didn't get to see Neesmith tryout. Oh, so you think Neesmith is going to be part of the, the hypothetical yet very spoken about Harrison Barnes trade, do you think that Neesmith will be part of that? I think it could be Neesmith straight up. What, just a straight up swap Neesmith? Yeah. For, yeah. I mean, no no picks, no nothing? No. Yeah, I think you could do Neesmith straight up. And would you be happy with that? For sure. I mean, I'm happy with that. Can we make this deal now? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Let's Keep Romeo. As long as Romeo stays, Adam's happy. Okay, so I've been talking to Kings guys about this today. I'm like, listen, I think you could get Romeo in a first because of Romeo's like upcoming contract situation, right? But I think that if it was just Neesmith, you probably are forced to take Neesmith straight up um, because he's just a rookie this season. And I'm more intrigued by Romeo in a first, uh, but I don't think that many people are very high on Romeo. I think, I don't know, are you and I outliers? Do you feel like other people in Boston media? Oh, for sure, dude. I, I tell everybody I am unreasonably high on Romeo. Okay. Because there is no reason for me to hold him in the regard I do, other than the fact that I genuinely believe, like I'm, I'm dying on this hill, that he will be a really solid NBA player. I, I yeah. So I didn't realize we were outliers here, honestly. Oh, massively, uh, did we're probably like yeah. two of like a million. Yeah. Right. Um, 
So yeah. everyone and in the I will Kings, say like Neesmith obviously is more intriguing to um, than Langford because of that contract situation. Everyone at the Kings Herald, did they agree you can get Barnes straight up for Neesmith? Are they happy I believe with that? So like, let me, uh, I'll get a verification while we're talking here, but I'm pretty sure. See, that's a, I'm happy to do that deal. Guys, tweet at me. Let me know if you would be happy with a straight up deal. Harrison Barnes for Aaron Neesmith. Obviously, uh, Barnes comes into the TPE. But and you're losing Neesmith, but you're getting a really proven guy that can play um defense, can score, and he's proven as playing as the fourth or fifth option on an NBA team. So that to me in itself is super valuable. We saw him against Boston the last night. We're recording this on Thursday, so Wednesday night. Went for twenty four points, six assists, five rebounds. That's exactly the sort of wing help that the Celtics need right now. And he could be the guy to be the difference between a conference finals appearance and a finals appearance. Yeah, and I mean, Danny Ainge on a podcast, right? Or, or was it radio? Radio, not yet. Point five, touch room rich. Yeah, says shooting with size is what he's looking for. Um, a complete player who can help defensive focus too. And he called the deadline a sweet spot for using the TP, which was a little bit of a surprise for me. I was like, okay, this is probably happening, right? Yeah, I'm more surprised that that one little um, clip there, that sweet spot section, like little quote, that was the most surprising part of the entire interview to me because I'd resign myself to the summer. That was when I was expecting it to be used. Yeah, I'm getting yeses, by the way, from the Kings Herald guys on an Smith Barnes straight up. I thought I was just making sure. Um, but yeah, no, I, people are on board on it from Sacramento's side. The money work? Yes, I did this the other day. Um, I'll check again right now. Taking into account the hard cut? Yeah. Um, give me a second here. I'm a little trade NBA, which is by far the best trade website, let me tell you. Let's see. We got Aaron Neesmith for Harrison Barnes straight up into the TPE, which does work. It is a plus 18.7 million coming towards Boston. Okay, sign me up. Let's do this tomorrow. I will send this uh, send this letter over to Danny Ainge at the end of this podcast. I'm only joking. I do not have that level of access to Danny Ainge. If I did, then he'd be on this show instead of Brendan, let me tell you right now. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and I would tune into every single minute of that episode. If McNair, uh, Sacramento's GM on the other side, is saying, is asking also for Boston's 2021 first, are you still in consideration here? Well, I mean, if you're making a like move for much. a guy like Harrison Barnes, I mean, how long's left on Barnes's contract? Three years. So you're not only going into a, a, an immediate help, but you're getting long term help. And you'll see this a lot with teams that feel like they're in contention. They'll move on from first-round picks during the period of contention to be able to acquire that immediate help. So I, I think that gaining Harrison Barnes and losing Neesmith plus this year's first, oh, this year's a good draft too. Um, yeah, I think that's still fine, honestly. You can always make fringe moves and see if you can pick up a late first elsewhere if you really like somebody at the tail end of the draft. But Celtics have had enough young guys coming through the draft over the last few years. It's time to really take a hit at somebody that can come in and provide immediate help. And Harrison Barnes, to me, screams like he'd be the perfect fit. So take Neil Smith, take a first, but that's as much as you're getting. I mean... I, I'm running away with that. Um, I, I don't know that De'Aaron Fox is the most happy, but uh, I, I don't think their current level of play is. He can grow exactly his hair out. He'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Kid Cunningham's got a nice set of hair on him. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I think it, it makes the Kings really bad. <laughs> that was like the best part. segue in the world. <laughs> that is, it is, it makes the Kings, I think a big part of it is that it just really makes the Kings bad this year. Um, you know, the Kings are a game and a half out of the fifth seed in the Western Conference. I saw They're also this. a game and a half out of the 14th seed in the Western Conference. And they're about to play Denver, the Clippers, and the Sixers. So they're going to be, yeah, you're out of the playoffs. Yeah, that. so like everybody's feeling really good right now. Uh, but, you know, it's probably going to come back down to earth. Quite um, quickly. Yeah, it's going to crash yeah. back down to earth. No, I agree. Look, Harrison Barnes makes a bunch of sense to me. Um I'd be happy to do it. If it means losing Neesmith in a pick, that's fine. Do we get to keep Romeo? Yes, even better. Um, the Kings obviously are more all in on a high draft pick this year than making the playoffs. From what I, can, I know the fan base would prefer a playoffs appearance. Uh, their playoff appearance starved. Yeah, and you know, I, I, we don't really have a tell from McNair. He's been very quiet. Um, but I think like moving on from, from Bogey, like I think if you wanted to win this year, you would have re signed Bogdanovich to that deal. Um, and, and I think that, you know, he's very much preached that 
he wants to get the team back to the playoffs, but he wants to eventually reach championship um, level basketball. And the way that you do that, in my mind, is you need to add one more De'Aaron Fox level talent. Um, and the only way that's coming to Sacramento is through the draft. And, and Halliburton is, is only a rookie. Fox is just about to kick into that max deal similar to Tatum. Um, so they have time, you know, and, and Harrison Barnes just is the exact player that Danny Ainge is talking about in this uh, radio show. 6'8", he's shooting 41% from three this season on 4.4 attempts, and it's really not some crazy outlier since the start of 2018-19. He's shooting 39% from three on 4.7 attempts. Um, He doesn't really force anything. I think he's pretty switchable on defense. You can get away. Like, he's probably a 3-4, right? Um, but you can get away with kind of two to four switching, even some minutes on a five, because like I said, he's very fundamental in, in using his physicality. Um, I, I think he's just an extremely smart player that doesn't really force anything. Um, I, I think that he's a great fit in Boston. I've been preaching it here for a little while. And this is going to be the last time we get to hear you preach it. That's the worst thing that we see. You make bad I'll be, decisions. I'll be Brandon. back when the trade happens. Make bad decisions, Brandon. Like deciding Pritchard's going to be a bust. You see, if you've just been on the Pritchard, well, you're just saying you want to trade away Boston's first, which is the next Pritchard. So, yeah, but you get Harrison Barnes, and it helps now. And they don't need any more rookies. They have enough rookies. The problem with this bench is they're all too young. Okay, I got you here. I got you here. You know what what I mean? Smith and Pritchard for Barnes. No, come on. No, no, (laughs) that was so quick. Don't push the boat. Don't rock the boat. We agreed on Neesmith in the 2021 first. That's what we agreed on. I prefer that anyways because, yeah, never mind. You'd have to quit your own podcast if Pritchard came. No, 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 no. Yeah. I'd act like I was high on them the whole time. They they don't know about that. Oh, I'd make sure everybody knew. (laughs) (laughs) No, they do know. They do know. Everybody, yeah. No, I'm not alone in that. (laughs) Right, guys, you've... uh, we're going to say bye to Brendan now for the uh, last time. Brendan, you want to tell everyone where they can find you if they want to keep hearing you with your bad takes on Pritchard? Yeah, well, I'm sure you and I will be quote-tweeting each other all the time and interacting with each other. So if you follow Adam, you're going to end up uh, running into me, I'm sure. But yeah, it's uh, at Brendan Nunes MBA. Uh, Adam and I are very creative with those as a joke we've used maybe 100 times over. Um, and yeah, I'm going to be doing a solo pod myself at uh, King's Pulse. And I'm sure you and I are both going to come up with uh, some fun ideas for solo podcasts and probably steal each other's ideas and uh, and uh, expand on them as well. So, yeah, man, I'm sure that you're going to do a great job keeping up this pod and uh, everybody be sure to continue to tune in. And if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say it at all. Guys, you're going to hear from Sabrina Merchant and myself on the upcoming Clippers game shortly. Brendan, man, uh, this isn't the last that myself and Brendan will be doing. Uh, we'll be doing some other work most likely together at some point. But for now, this is, uh, this is goodbye from the Celtics pod. Okay, everybody. So for the second part of today's podcast, I'm joined by Sabrina Merchant, who's the chief editor at Clips Nation for SBNation.com. That's right, isn't it, Sabrina? You're running all things Clippers over there. That is correct. How's it been going? Oh, man, it's my pleasure. How's it been going? Oh, you know, uh, six game road trip. Clippers are going to get to play some more fun teams this week. It's good times. (laughs) (laughs) The, uh, The game against the Nets was meant to have been amazing. It's on my two watch list over the next few days. How was that when you was looking at defense for Simons? Like, uh, how was Kawhi and PG doing going up against Durant and Kyrie and James? Yeah, so I thought uh, Kawhi did about as well as could be expected of any human guarding Kevin Durant. And I say that fully expecting that most people don't consider Kawhi to be human. But um, a lot of those shots were just, you know, Kevin Durant shooting over the top of him because he's seven feet tall and Kawhi Leonard is not. Uh, and... I think uh, what you really saw with the Clippers was not so much that they didn't have the defensive personnel available. Like, I mean, obviously Patrick Beverly would help. I think they would just need to be a little less uh, automatic with their switches against a team like the Nets because they were getting some cross matches that, you know, weren't weren't great. <laughs> Who's injured for you guys? Who is on the um, unsure of if they're going to play list, we'll call it? 
Yeah. So right now it's just Patrick Beverly that's unavailable. And then they're, you know, their second round pick from this past season who hasn't played one lick this season. So okay, from the so normal rotation, just Beverly. Both teams defensive heart and soul in terms of Patrick Beverly and Marcus Smart. Were exactly. Not so we're going for a shootout is what we're going for. Exactly. <laughs> Boston have generally struggled with teams that have a penetrating point guard. Uh, they have done for a few years. It was the same again against Sacramento. We're recording this on Thursday, so it was the same again last night against the Aaron Fox. What's been the biggest struggle for the defense for the Clippers? Where are they kind of weakest? What's that, that one chink in their armor? I would completely agree with you. Honestly, it's it's funny that we're talking because I, I find so many similarities between the Clippers and the Celtics just in terms of, you know, being built around those two stud wings, right, with Kawhi and PG versus Jalen and uh, Tatum. And the Clippers all season have struggled with these little shifty point guards who can get into the lane. Uh, they also tend to have a lot of trouble with De'Aaron Fox. This past week has been just a, a nightmare of like Kyrie Irving, Emmanuel Quickly, uh, Colin Sexton, all of those guys had really good success offensively against the Clippers. And it's only been magnified by the fact that Beverly missed the entire road trip and he probably won't be playing tomorrow. I think Kemba will be playing. I know that he's not been playing the back-to-backs, but I'm imagining they held him out against Sacramento so that they can have him ready to go against the Clippers. And uh, I don't know how well really he's been playing since he came back from that injury, but he's the type of guard that, you know, you know, the Clippers are willing to uh, give up those mid-range shots. And that's a place where Kemba is very comfortable <laughs> So that's the kind of thing where uh, you could see them directing more of their offense towards Walker if uh, things go that way against the Clippers. So it might please you to know that Kemba has been rough for um, pretty much the entire time he's been back. Um, he had a game, so it wasn't against the Kings. My brain is shut. I don't know what's going on with me today. The game against... Was it the Warriors? Whoever was before. The Warriors, yes. Yeah, see, you know it more than me. My brain is. I watch all the shot. Cali teams. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he had a thirty-three percent shooting night. And at the time, I was like, I need to write about this because he was coming off the back of like a four-point game. And I was like, this is a bounce-back game. He's played so well. And then when you start to go back through the film and look at the numbers, it was like, if this feels like a bounce-back game, then this is a really concerning kind of trend. So you might find that the concerns you have about Kemba are more are very kind of negated in terms of he's still rusty. He's not where he wants to be. You can see the shot just isn't falling for him, but he does still open up the floor for the other two guys, um, which is where the battle's really going to happen, right? It's going to be Kawhi versus Tatum and PG versus Brown. And we, there's been some fun matchups between those four guys over the last few years. So from a neutral standpoint, it's going to be a great game. My biggest concern with you guys is I really think that Kawhi can just tear them apart coming in mm. off angles. They've really struggled this year on a um, pick and roll defense. The Celtics seem to like to switch everything. Um, they've added in like this, um, it's like a hard show slash blitz, but they just don't communicate who's meant to be coming off that show afterwards. Mm. So you just end up with like this open man just waiting for the ball. Uh, it's just <laughs> really frustrating. How has it been for you guys attacking in the pick and roll? Who's been your predominant scorer out of pick and roll situations? Yeah, so it's mostly been uh, Kawhi and PG, not so much pick and roll, but a lot of pick and pop uh, with Serge Ibaka um, now that he's in the starting lineup instead of Zubac. Uh, but then you will see some pick and roll with Zubac in the second unit. Uh, but uh, they, they really like the dynamism that that gives that starting unit, you know, having the floor spaced with five guys who can all shoot the three ball because, you know, you've got Nick Batum at the four as well, and he's just been killing it from the corners and very willing to let fly above the break where he's been, like, moderately less successful, but, you know, still above average three-point shooter. So yeah, there's a lot of space for those two guys to work with. And there's a lot of talk, you know, about obviously like the Clippers don't have a point guard, whatever. Uh, those two wings are perfectly capable ball handlers, especially when you give them all of that room to operate. <laughs> and uh, that that switching is an interesting, like if, if the Celtics are going to switch, like you're going to see a lot of Tristan Thompson and Daniel Tice on Kawhi, which I, I don't think is going to end up very well for either of them um, <laughs> or against Paul George, frankly. So uh, you'd think that, this is a system where you'd want to play the pick and roll a bit cleaner without switching, maybe, you know, try to play it two on two without sending help because there's just so much shooting around the floor, you know, surrounding the two of them. Um, but I'm glad you brought up the the history of these two teams playing one another because I think the last three times the Clippers have played the Celtics have been just like among my favorite games of the season. Like you had that uh, game right after the trade deadline in February of 19 when you know, the, Clip, the Celtics went up really big and then Kyrie Irving had to come out and then the Clippers came back uh, all the way when it was like this team that wasn't supposed to compete after giving away their best player, you know, Tobias Harris. And then 
Obviously, we had the games last year. The one in LA was the first time Kawhi and PG had played together as Clippers and then ends up going to overtime and Jason Tatum ends up hitting this shot to send it in overtime where like Paul George is like fallen in front of him and <laughs> he takes the three to tie the game. And then the Celtics got their revenge in the Boston Garden where I don't think Patrick Beverly was playing that game. So it's kind of been like this uh, unfortunate reality that like Hayward missed one game last year, Beverly missed one game, and now we have obviously Beverly and Smart missing this one. Incidentally, Beverly does not like being compared to Smart. I know you brought that up earlier. <laughs> he he really despises that comparison, which I don't understand because it seems very flattering to me. Uh, but I guess when you've been in the league as long as Patrick Beverly is, you kind of uh, object to being compared to players who are younger than you who are not objective all-stars, you know? I mean, I've, yeah, I know that there's been, um, I remember last year, um, Pat Bev kind of snapped at a Celtics reporter over being compared to Marcus Smart at that point. I thought that was just after a, you know, a tough game. He was tired. I didn't realize that as actually something that he had a, a little bit of trepidation towards like, oh, I've, do you know, I don't understand why, but I do get it. Marcus Smart should be compared to Pat Beverly, not Pat Beverly compared to Marcus Smart. I think just the age, right? Yeah. yeah. Just like I was going to say, it was, it was a lot nicer than when Patrick Beverly was tried to compare to um, Matthew Delvadova. He did not take kindly to that one at all. Is the videos for that? Can I find that on YouTube? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll send that to you afterwards. <laughs> send those to me. Um, so yeah, the Celtics have been switching. What I do notice is when Tristan Thompson's there, they might run like it's really funky. It's like um, they'll have one guy drop, so it'll usually be Thompson, and then they'll switch the other four positions, which makes it really hard because the predominant um, idea of switching is everybody rotates on a switch. Mm-hmm. So when you're anchoring one guy, it really does make it difficult to execute. My biggest concern there is more Zubac, just the way he's going to be able to just over overpower everybody they've got um i think that he's probably going to be a little bit stronger than what thompson is he's going to have that height on him uh mm-hmm. rob williams might do a good job in certain aspects but when they when zubach comes in after they've been defending a five out and then they have to kind of turn into more of a drop scheme to kind con- to contain and play mm-hmm. that that's going to be a that's where one of my biggest fears is is figuring out how to stop a resurgent nick batum while also cutting off rolling lanes and driving lanes and you guys are just so deep from one through 10. It's ridiculous. And if you ask most Celtics fans, we're probably deep one through seven. And then there's right. a huge talent drop off afterwards. Um, so you guys are just going to be able to go so much deeper into your bench and keep your guys fresher. That That's a concern for a, a lot of Celtics people I've spoke to over the last few days. Yeah, I mean, I was watching the Kings game last night and like there was just a little too much Tremont Waters for my taste, you know, for a team that fancies itself a contender. But... I guess that's what happens, you know, when you're missing your two guys who could ostensibly play point guard and Kemba and Marcus Smart. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I'm curious, like, have, has Tatum sort of, uh, like figured out the whole free throw drawing thing yet? Like, um, like that, um, that's, I mean, it's a yeah. work in progress. He's getting to the line a little bit more. Um, he's more, the main focus with Tatum recently has been, um, figuring out how to facilitate becoming a mm-hmm. ball handler, uh, giving the team that extra outlet that can create for others and make his teammates better. There was um something said today, Danny Ainge said on one of his radio appearances where he kind of mentioned Kawhi and Paul George and saying like that they're, they're so good at being able to create for other guys and make guys around them better. Like you, ha- like you said earlier, you have no problem putting the ball in their hands. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what they're trying to develop Jalen and Jason into. So the free throws are coming as a byproduct of him driving more. I don't think he's really figured out the art of it as in like put your guy in jail just before you jump and then draw or via after that layup to try and draw. It's just more of a byproduct of holy hell, Jason Tatum's driving the lane. We need to get some hands on him to stop him getting the dunk. But it is more along the lines of, um, yeah, he's facilitating more, but he's also getting some nasty turnovers because he's still figuring out when to pass and when to drive. Right. And that's why it seems like, you know, just in terms of, Jalen and uh, Brown versus Jalen and Jason, sorry, versus, you know, the Clippers wings. There's just like a, a couple years behind, right? Like this type of playmaking was not visible in Kawhi's game. Even two years ago in Toronto, he wasn't making raids like this that he is with the Clippers. And Paul George, like I remember stories of him in Indiana where Frank Vogel would like deny him. Like he said, you were not allowed to split the pick and roll because you turned the ball over like every single time. So you got to stop doing that. Uh, so I, I just think like, you know, these guys are, what each of them 29 30 they're just much further along in their careers than boston but it's a nice like template to look forward to in terms of what you hope those two guys could become uh, when you're building a team around them but yeah like i i think uh the clippers are definitely going to get creative with uh 
Tatum, like they don't like to send the same coverage every single time against all stars, right? Like they're going to blitz them a little bit. They're going to switch a little bit. They're going to, uh, I mean, probably just start with Kawhi and him one on one because why wouldn't you do that? Uh, <laughs> but, um, I, I would imagine that you're going to see like a healthy diet of different coverages throughout the game because Tyloo just loves to just experiment and it's regular season, right? So he's not going to just stick with one thing, even if it is working at the time. I mean, that's a really good point. You've just brought up Ty Lu. What are the differences between this year's Ty Lu coach Clippers and last year's Doc Rivers Clippers? What's the main differences for you? I think uh, it's really just an emphasis on ball movement. Um, with the Clippers last year, a lot of it was, let's just get the ball to Kawhi, you know, on an ISO, see what can happen. Uh, let's just get the ball to Lou on an ISO and see what can happen. And Paul George wasn't facilitating as much as he is this year uh, because there was, you know, a greater responsibility given to Lou Williams. But now there's much more of an understanding of like how to make the play after the play, right? When the first action breaks down, like let's run a side pick and roll or like, you know, set a step up screen or something like to keep the flow moving uh, after that first thing has been cut off. And you kind of see it in the sense that like the Clippers are one of the slower paced teams in the league, right? Like it takes them a longer time to get into their sets, even though like Tyloo's always saying they need to play faster, faster, faster. I, it just doesn't seem to be like their comfort zone yet. They like to methodically like find the advantage among the defense, like by moving the ball, by compromising, you know, the angles on both sides of the floor and seeing where the weak spot emerges. So uh, I think that's like the main thing is just that there's a lot more flow on the offensive end, right? Like you're not going to see as many isolations. You're not going to see as many like strict post-ups unless there's been like, you know, Kyrie Irving switches on to Kawhi Leonard. I'm like, yeah, now Kawhi Leonard is going to post up because like that's, that's the objectively right play to make here. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's, that's what it is. It's just, it's a lot more movement. And then the spacing too, because like, I think most people expected Zubach to be the starter this year when he came back, especially because he had such a great postseason relative, you know, to Montrezl Harrell, who's no longer with the Clippers, but they brought in Ibaka and they want to space the floor. They want to have five guys who can shoot at all times. There's a lot more pick and pop than there was last year. Like even Patrick Patterson has a role as a pick and pop guy when, why is Patrick Patterson ever a role on this team? But uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's the major change a lot on the offensive end there. And then you're looking at guys like um, like Reggie Jackson's there, uh, as you say, Patrick Patterson's there, Nick Batum, who everybody had on the scrap heap like six months ago. And they've all come in and bought into what you you guys are doing over there. And they've all found like really niche roles. Who has been the biggest surprise? Is it Batum? Has Batum been the guy that really... Yeah, as much as I would like love to make a fun answer here and say like, oh, Reggie Jackson like is making better decisions. That's not the important thing here. The important thing is that Nick Batum was basically left for dead in Charlotte. Uh, he claims that his game has not changed one iota, that he just likes the fit better here, and maybe that's it, but he has been remarkable. Like, you you talk about how great Kawhi and PG are on the wing defensively. Like, they can switch with Nick, too, <clears throat> because he's just another guy who can handle most of those assignments. Like, obviously, the Nets were tough for him. The Nets are going to be tough for anybody. But, like, against an average team, <laughs> he's pretty great. Uh, and he's shooting the ball really confidently, and he's just... uh one of those connectors on the offensive end, like he knows how to move off the ball. If a possession is stalling, he knows like where to cut. He knows where to make the next pass. He's uh, just really solid in terms of, it sounds super cliche to make, but like he doesn't make bad decisions. And uh, it helps to have somebody like that who you trust on both ends of the floor, because for all of the talent the Clippers had last season, most of it was one way. Like, yeah, you know, we like Zubac in this assignment defensively, but like we like Zubac, you know, rolling down and, taking care of this off- offensive assignment, but like he can't stretch or, you know, garden space on defense or like we like Lou Williams, but he can't guard on the other end. Right. And then Nick Batum just gives a, another two way guy who fits in like every lineup they're using, right? Like he can play in a traditional lineup with a center. He can play like a small ball lineup too. And uh, I think it's a little interesting that they've only used him at the four. Uh, I, I thought he would have more like wing ability at this point in his career, but Ty's been very clear that he's a forward. That's it. Like, we're not moving him down. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's gotta be Batum. Um, what about you guys? What, who on the Celtics is hey, someone um, that the Clippers probably haven't been paying attention to? Uh, Peyton Pritchard, but he's not playing. Um, right. he was a revelation. Uh, he's been amazing at the moment. Obviously it's a short, short, small sample size. He's going to hit that rookie wall if you're being realistic with things. And that's probably going to come sooner because the season's so truncated outside of him. Um, there isn't really anyone, to be quite honest. Uh, Grant Williams, who done really well as a small ball five last year, has struggled. Um, he started to piece it back together slowly, but because of the big man rotation that's there now in Daniel Tice, Robert Williams, and Tristan Thompson, Grant Williams is being asked to play at the four more than what he was last year. And I don't think he's got the lateral quickness to hang with some 
starting level forwards and wings. And he's been exposed a little bit. I, I, he's figuring it out. He has the IQ. It's all about angles for him and knowing where to position his body for that to force direction. And as he gets used to that, that'll be fine. The only other guy is Daniel Tice. He's just, um, he's improved so much as a three point shooter, as a pick and pop for it himself. Uh, he doesn't bring the physicality that Ibaka does, but I think he brings a little bit more maneuverability. He can, he can maneuver the court a little bit more fluidly than Ibaka can just because of the frame difference. Uh, Ideally, I'd still choose Ibaka if I was being completely <laughs> honest. Um, who wouldn't, right? But I don't think there's outside of the normal suspects, especially because there's so many people injured. There's not really anyone that's going to come out and surprise the Clippers unless Jeff Teague has a good day and that will surprise everybody, not just Clippers. <laughs> that will surprise everybody. Yeah. How has the Tristan Thompson experience been? Because obviously Ty Lue is very familiar with his game, but, uh, I, I'm going to be honest. I had not paid much attention to him in Cleveland the last couple of years. Which is fair, right? I mean, not many people yeah. pay much attention. Um, honestly, he came into the season, he was carrying a bit of an injury. He missed um, a bit of the preseason. And then personally, I think what's happened is he's came back a bit too early and played through that injury. And that's really limited his impact on both sides of the floor. Uh, the last two games, he started to score more because he was having some games where he was putting up like two points, four points, and being a net negative on defense too because he just couldn't rotate quick enough or guys would blow by him. The last two games, he's looked far more physical and a lot more engaged vocally as well. Uh, he's directing traffic. He's making sure he's on his man. He's uh, playing a lot of belly up on guys that uh, he thinks that are going to be pick and pop threats, which is what I'd expect to see against Ibaka. And he's looked great, to be quite honest, over the last, but it's again, it's a two-game sample size. So I'm hoping that he's turned a corner. But to, to be quite honest, there was a lot of Celtics fans over the first 10 games that was a uh, very upset that Jeff Teague and Tristan Thompson had both came in and both looked really poor. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned the vocal thing. Like that's one of the things on the Clippers where when Beverly's out, nobody really talks on the team. Like they, they basically like communicate just enough to know what they're doing on defense, but nobody's like super vocal. Uh, I think being back in Staples Center is going to help a little bit because at least Pat will be on the sidelines, you know, yelling through his mask. But, and it's impossible not to hear it. Like true. <laughs> But yeah, that's, that's one thing that the Clippers, like, uh, when you talk about their lack of leadership, so to speak, like, I don't believe that's actually a thing, but I do believe that they do need guys to just be a little bit louder on the court because there's, they could use like a smidge more communication. So it's something that, that's interesting you brought up about Tristan. Yeah. I mean, watching through a TV, you kind of, um, especially for me, because I'm not ever going to be in it. Well, I might be, but not often in the stadium. Um, for me, I look out for where they're pointing, if they're on defense and they're telling, like dragging guys into position, shouting out sets, go back there. You see Marcus Smart do it a lot. Um, and then I was very keen to see how Thompson did that in Smart's absence because now that's his role. He's coming mm -hmm. as the veteran defensive presence and he looks really good. He didn't play the last 14 minutes of the game against the Kings. A lot of people are saying that was a Brad Stevens mistake because they lost the game. I'm looking at it as, if he has only just realistically got over this injury, then sitting him for the last quarter, meaning making sure he's fresh for the Clippers game, is probably smart coaching in the long term. I'd much rather lose to the Kings on a game where you've pulled him out early than lose to the Clippers on a game where he's played the entire way through. Uh, just being completely honest, the one thing that I am concerned about with you guys is the shooting. The Celtics... Added some guys through the draft in Pritchard, Neesmith. Uh, they brought in Teague to add some penetration to free these shooters up. And realistically, only Semi Ojale scoring off the bench from deep. Uh, and that's a problem. You guys just have so much spacing where you can run five out, you can run four out. And stretch defense is really wide. The Celtics are going to go the other way. They're going to look to penetrate very regularly after high pick and rolls and then find open guys on the corners or secondary slashes off the wing. Have you come up against many teams that like to penetrate that much? I'm trying to think. Um, on this recent trip, uh, not really. Like uh, Orlando, Miami, um, even the Knicks. Like, And Brooklyn doesn't really do a lot of like driving. Do they do drive? I guess James Harden does that. They do but ISO and maybe dish do. at the very end of the shot clock. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Harden's been doing some driving kick. But yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, I do think that point of attack defense is probably like the, the lone weakness on the Clippers defensive unit. Um, but again, like your penetrating is not going to be coming from the point guard spot as much, right? It's going to be coming from the wings with Jalen and Jason. So 
yeah, that's exactly, where yeah. the Clippers so are very that, well suited to, you know, defend those yeah. two guys because the best two wing defenders in the league, arguably. Uh, so I, <laughs> and two of the best wing scorers in the league, like you, your two star wings, as you said, are just a f- Jason and Jalen a few years further along. And this is why I like going up against the Clippers because you can see the growth from Jalen and Jason in the way they attack and how they, like when they first played against Kawhi and PG, you could see there were struggles. They were trying to figure out how to get open, mm-hmm. how to get their looks. And then it got easier. Then you had the PG slip, um, which Celtics fans will tell you was an, a nasty crossover. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, just social media will do that for you. Yeah. I, I just um, think of it as one of the first games Paul George is playing all season, you know, just last his footing. <laughs> Yeah, but it was just one of those things. Uh, obviously, if you go back and watch, it was a slip, but um, no, it was definitely a crossover. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you can see them slowly figuring stuff out. And I'm very keen to see how they handle going up against PG and Kawhi at this level, because they've been operating on a really high level, right? I read one of your pieces earlier, and you kind of stated the fact that this is some of the best basketball you've seen Kawhi and PG play together mm-hmm. since they've been in LA. Well, are they doing so good? Is it just the fact that they're making shots at a higher percentage or have they upped their game in other aspects as well? So, I mean, the, sh- the shooting, you have to mention it because the Clippers are shooting over 42% from three, which I, I keep saying doesn't feel sustainable. But then I look at the shots they're getting and it's like, yeah, you know, if Marcus Morris is open from the corner, he should make that. Like if Nicholas Batum doesn't have a defender within eight feet of him, he should make that shot, right? And those are the kinds of looks they're getting over and over again. Um, and they're shooting like 51% from the corners, which what in the world? Like, why are they getting that many corner threes and why are they making that many? But I really do think a lot of it is just a function of the offensive system, right? Like Ty Lue is putting them in position to succeed by giving them so much space to work with, by putting the ball in their hands, letting them work through their mistakes. Um, with Paul, I think he's, uh, his playmaking is not at the same level as Kawhi's, uh, but I mean, it's, it's still pretty good, uh, but he's just been emboldened a lot more. Like I mentioned that Frank Vogel story earlier, like Ty Lue just lets him work through all of his mistakes, right? Like his turnover rate is a little bit higher this year than it has been in previous years, which is fine because he's handling the ball a lot more. And that is the natural outcome of handling the ball more. Uh, but he just seems so much more confident in those situations where like no one's trusted him to be the lead guard before, right? Like he had Westbrook, he had George Hill and all of his other guys in Indiana and even last year, like he was, I would say the third ball handling option on the Clippers, which is strange to say when the second guy was coming off the bench. But Kawhi, I think his passing is just so much sharper. Like he's manipulating the defenses with his eyes. Like, you know, he'll look off the defender and then send the pass in the opposite direction. Um, you know, he's like not making the obvious pass, but like making the skip passes and his, he's just like throwing darts all around the court. Like it's, it's impeccable. Like you think that this guy has been doing this level of creation his entire career when really, it's been like the last two seasons. Uh, so I would say that Kawhi, a lot of it is individual skill development, that he's just become so much smarter at reading defenses. And then Paul George, it's just a matter of him giving the opportunity, you know, to play this way that he hasn't in quite some time. I'm not going to lie. I'm scared of these two guys. Um, <laughs> Most people are. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be a really tough matchup. Um, Jason Tatum's a very good off-ball defender. Jalen Brown's a, a phenomenal on-ball wing defender. So I think this matchup really makes for must-see TV. The only other guy I really want to ask you about before I kind of let you ask anything you want and then we'll wrap up is what have you seen in differences between Landry Shaman and Luke Kennard? I know that you brought Kennard in with the idea of he can facilitate a little bit more than what Shaman could. He can put the ball on the floor. Has he lived up to that expectation or has he kind of been a, a letdown? I will say relative to Landry Shamit, Luke Kennard has been a godsend because Landry has done not much of anything in Brooklyn. Um, but yeah, I, I think the idea with Luke was that he could be more of a playmaker, more of a creator. And then he's just such a dominant shooter. Like he's been knocking down over 40% of his threes this season too. And that's, again, not like a an outlier. That's something that he's been capable of throughout the course of his college and pro career. So the, the problem is that it's just, it's been difficult to find places for him and Lou to both like have run of the offense because they tried this like Lou um, off ball thing where like he's sort of the play finisher instead of the play creator. And it's, it's just easier for Lou to succeed when the ball is in his hands. And so like by staggering him and Luke and then also giving Kawhi and PG room to run the offense, like Luke just gets less opportunities. And what I've discovered about Kennard is that he needs more time to get comfortable. Like he can't just come in and immediately be on in the way that Lou Williams is. And he just hasn't been given as much time in the offense to get comfortable. So 
you see a lot of times like the Clippers are just like imploring him to like, shoot, shoot, be more aggressive, like stop moving the ball. Like uh, uh, it's just like get your own at some time. And it's, it's just a learning process, right? Like new team, new system. He hadn't played for a full calendar year before this season started because of injuries that he had in Detroit. So I know that the Clippers like him a lot. They like his talent a lot. Uh, they obviously extended him even before the start of the season. So he's going to be around for another three, four years. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I don't think he's been exactly what Clipper fans would have expected. I mean, I know I thought that he was going to be more dynamic, <clears throat> but he's just been so efficient as a spot up shooter that like there's going to be a place for him anyway, even if like the whole package hasn't come together yet. And that's the thing, right? Cause, um, two, three years ago, Detroit looked at him as one of their core rebuild pieces. They didn't want to let mm. him go for app. I remember there was discussions and a lot of people were like, Canard won't go unless the return is phenomenal. Then he has that big injury and obviously they've kind of lost a little bit of faith in his ability to stay healthy and his longevity within the league. And the Clippers go and land a steal, which gives them even more firepower and even more shot creation. The only thing I really think that you guys lost, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is the Montrez and Lou will pick and roll, which was not last year, but the year before when you had that um, awesome series against the Warriors. Um, that was a real big weapon. And I feel like that was one of the most fun parts about watching Clippers basketball was that bench pick and roll unit between Lou and Montrez. Have you guys missed that? Have you found a new dynamic to kind of get the best out of Lou? Yeah, I think uh, during the regular season, I would totally agree with you. I, I miss watching the two of them together. They're just really fun and they, they work so well because they, they play together during the off seasons in Atlanta. Like they're, they're good friends. They figure things out together. It's just a, it's a really like copacetic dynamic. You know, they just work incredibly well together. And I'm going to say that the Clippers are perfectly happy that Montrose Harrell is no longer on the team. If it meant like sacrificing him for Ibaka, because in a postseason setting, there's definitely one guy you'd rather have, and it's the one who can defend the rim and hit threes, and that is not Montrez Harrell. But, I mean, the fact that Lou Williams has had a slow start to the season, I think, is inextricable from the fact that Montrez Harrell is no longer there because, yeah, he can do a little pick and roll with Zubach, but Zubach's hands aren't quite as good as Montrez's is. Like, he doesn't catch things as cleanly as Montrez does, so Lou can't hit him with every angle of pass that he used to, you know, get with Montrez. Um they do a little bit more like uh, DHOs with Lou and Zoo than they did straight pick and roll just because it's, you know, that that requires less handling from uh, Zoo's perspective. Um, uh, I also think that, yeah, just like what like I was mentioning with the second unit, you know, like having that additional ball handler and Luke and then also playing Reggie Jackson a little bit like they just, that second unit has had some minor difficulties, right? I'm not going to say that like they've been a, a cause for concern or anything, but uh, there's just a lot of similar type players who all want to operate similarly and the take turn thing is, is a little challenging. So yeah, I mean, I'm not worried about Lou at all. Like you put him with the starters and it's like a magnificent fit all over again. <laughs> um, and <clears throat> you know, zoo has just had a harder time being as effective on offense because he's cleaning up all of these fires on the defensive end with all these little cards in front of him. So yeah, I, I, I don't think they miss Montrez in the sense that like they're going to need him down the stretch, but like, just from a pure like 82 game perspective, I want to watch this guy play every single day. Like, yeah, it's different. Yeah. That was honestly, uh, obviously I don't catch every Clippers game, but the mm -hmm. ones that I did watch, that was always one of the things that I came away. Like that was really enjoyable watching these two work yeah. off each other. And then that, that run and you guys lost your Michael Green as well. That's correct. Right? <clears throat> that I think is a absence uh, that the Clippers will feel a little bit more fondly because, uh, he's a decent defender at those four or five spots. And I know Denver quite likes having him around, but um, that was just a matter of money, right? Like they couldn't afford to pay him and Morris and then also use their mid-level to sign Ibaka. So they prioritized Morris and Ibaka. And uh, I'm sure there are Clipper fans. Uh, I'm among them who would have rather had Green than Morris, but hey, you know, you make your decisions. And I think if the overall end game was getting Ibaka, then it's perfectly fine. <laughs> Marcus Morris heat checks are a thing of legend. <laughs> yeah, he was a, a Celtic for a, a minute there, right? Yeah, yeah, we got lots of Marcus yeah. Morris heat checks. They were, um, they were a thing. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I don't miss them. I, I do think Marcus Morris was quite good. I like the, the energy he brung and the defensive intensity, but I do not miss him just firing away at will. Um, does yeah, he do that uh, for you guys? So Tyloo has this thing where he, um, doesn't want Marcus to force it. So every time he's on the court, he'll run the after timeout play for him. So like he knows he's getting a shot there. Uh, just like, you know, keep him involved a little bit. Uh, which I think is nice, you know. So it's like, like the, a, pacifi the pacifier for the baby. I I totally get it. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, there there are some possessions where like you know uh, you look down for a second, all of a sudden the Clippers don't have the ball again, and it's like there was only like six seconds off the shot clock. What happened? It's like oh, 
Marcus took a jumper. Marcus <laughs> it's okay. Um, Sabrina, thank you for coming on. Do you want to tell everyone where they can um, find you? Yeah, so all of my work is on Clips Nation, uh, covering the Clippers, and I'm on Twitter at SabrinaJM. And there's also a lot of other California NBA talk on there, but you can just uh, filter through the teams you like. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on today, Sabrina. I, super, I really appreciate it. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks so much, Adam. Always a good time.